us are very well familiar now with Stephen Hall. I'm not going to take much of his time tonight, but and you had the biography on the screen if you noticed that as well. But Steve is a very faithful and very capable gospel preacher, and you know that if you've been here for these services. He's one of the elders of the Union Grove Congregation in Cleveland and serves as their preacher as well. And we're delighted that he has been with us. It has been a fantastic week, as Brother Steve uh, Pell mentioned. And we're looking forward to this lesson tonight in keeping with the hymn we have just sung, Nearer My God to Thee, Brother Stephen Hall. It is, of course, with mixed emotions this evening that I stand before you, just having such a, a great debt of gratitude to this wonderful congregation of the Lord's Church. I thank God for giving me the ability to stand before you. I thank, of course, this congregation for allowing me to be able to stand before you, her good elders, your wonderful ministers, as well as the wonderful brethren of this congregation, and the deacons as well. I, I failed to mention that this week. I, uh, they, they, of course, are the ones who labor so intently, and I am just thankful for each and every one of you. Again, as I, I stand before you, I, I do so, as I said, with mixed emotions, because I don't want this meeting to end. I have not been shown so as much kindness and love than I have at this particular meeting and I am just so thankful for you and thankful for again your your light that shines in this community and of course as we think about our lights and we let our lights shine for others again I know that you are doing so so that God would receive the glory and I pray that this week that he has been glorified I'm thankful that my son is at least able to be with us tonight uh, my son Hunter is, has been very sick uh, this last week, but thankfully the antibiotics are working and he is feeling well. So I'm, I, I'm thankful to the Lord for, uh, for that and for him being able to be with us. But this evening I, I just want to say again from the bottom of my heart, thank you, and that this congregation holds a very special place in my heart and, and I know in the hearts of my family as well. This evening, I'd like for us to think about something, and not just, just, just a matter, of course, that, that we should just think about this evening, but something, really, that we should think about every day. How close are you to God? We just sang that beautiful hymn, did we not? And, and I, I was amiss for a moment there. I want to thank the song leaders, too, and, and thank all of those who led prayers this week. But how close are you to God? Did you know this evening that you can be as close to God as you want to be? You can be as close to God as you desire in your hearts. And this evening that is going to be the thought. That is going to be the focus of this sermon. Nearer my God to thee. We're going to look at, of course, what it requires to be near to God. We're going to look at some things that may cause us to be away from God and, and some things that will cause us to stray. And hopefully with this lesson this evening, we will all have a greater understanding of how to be nearer to God. But you know, in order to be near to God, you must first want to be near to Him. 
You must want to be near to him before you can be near to him. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the great book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at a very important verse that we should reflect upon from time to time. And in Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to see that oftentimes it can be the case that we can be neglectful in our hearing. We could be neglectful in our duty. We could be neglectful in our diligence. And notice what the Hebrews writer tells us, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. He writes, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Notice that, of course, there is the possibility that as neglectful hearers, we could let things slip. And the idea behind this simply is that we can become lukewarm. We can become derelict in our duties. We can start to drift backwards. And as we drift backwards, it is of course possible that we will continue to drift backwards if we do not realize it. It is the case that if we're not moving forward, we are moving backward. If we're not growing, we are dying. But drifting or slipping requires hardly any effort. It truly takes no effort to drift. It truly takes no effort to slip. And if we begin to slip, if we begin to slide backwards, then we find that sometimes, and oftentimes it is the case, that the speed will increase. And we find as well that as that speed increases, it becomes harder and harder and harder for us to gain ground and to gain that footing. But notice that slipping or drifting backwards can often lead to shipwreck. I want us to notice what Paul said to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19 about some who had drifted backwards, some who had allowed themselves to slip. They had become neglectful hearers and derelict in their service. When Paul says, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. And as we begin to slip, and as we begin to drift backwards, it becomes easier and easier. For example, if we begin to miss the services of the church, the next time it may become easier to miss. And the very next time it may again become easier and easier, and our consciences are not seared, they're not bothered by it. What about in Bible study? When we do not open our Bibles and we do not study our Bibles, it becomes easier and easier and we continue down that path. What about in prayer? When we do not pray, the very next time it becomes easier to again not to pray. And I'm sure that we have all been familiar with the old adage that where there is much faith, there is much prayer. 
Where there is little faith, there is little prayer. And where there is no faith, there is no prayer. And this evening as we think about this idea of drifting backwards, we have to first be aware that we are drifting, and then we also have to know what to do about it. The hymnist wrote, When my love for Christ grows weak, when for deeper faith I seek, then in thought I go to thee, garden of Gethsemane. What do you do when you find yourself and your faith growing weak? Do you have a plan? Do you have a method to strengthen your faith? Have you thought about it? Have you thought about a plan? Have you thought about the biblical way to strengthen our faith? Well, God has a remedy. And we're going to look at that remedy tonight. But there's one question that I'm going to ask this night. And I'm going to ask it not but once, but more than once. Because this is the thought. If there's any thought that you take away tonight from this sermon, it is this thought here. How many hours a week does God have you all to himself? Notice I did not say minutes. Certainly we're not even going to, to even entertain that he only gets a few seconds. But how many hours in every week, does God have you all to himself? There are 168 hours in every week. We all have the same amount of hours, the same amount of time in every week. And what we tend to do, and I have found myself to be guilty of this, and I know we all from time to time do this, we, we will continually pound or add upon our, compound our schedules, we will add to our schedules, we will get so busy we will continually just look for things to do and we get so tied up in so many things. But sometimes we just need to pause and sit and be still and be with God. Well, you can be as close to God as you want to be. James says this in James 4 verse 8, Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. It reminds me of the beloved couple who had been married for over 50 years. And of course, the, the husband, he had his pickup truck, as most men do. And they were driving down the road one afternoon, and here she was sitting here, and here he was sitting behind the wheel driving. And she looks to her husband, the wife does, and she says, Do you remember when we were courting you remember when we began to date, how I used to sit right next to you in that cab of that truck? We would sit so close to one another, right next to one another, but uh, the years, of course, now apparently have separated us by some, and, and now I'm way over here. She looked at him and she said, what has happened? The husband said, darling, I've never moved. You see, that is the case when it comes to God. When we do not feel or when we are not near to God, it is the case that He hasn't moved. It is the case that we have moved away from Him. Notice what the Hebrews writer tells us in Hebrews 7 and verse 19. He says, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Now how do we tell if we're drifting how can we tell 
Well, we can tell in, in many different ways. We can tell also if others are drifting, can we not? When we see others, of course, who, who used to be very faithful in, in attending all of the services and those who were very faithful in the work of the church and, and they become less and less faithful and they work less and less, we can see that, can't we? It's, it's very apparent. It, it, it isn't a mystery. It's something that we can certainly see. But if we have a diminished desire to read and study the Bible, then perhaps we're drifting. If we have a diminished desire to pray, then perhaps we're drifting. If we have a diminished desire to be in the assembly of the church, perhaps we are drifting. If we have a diminished desire to tell others about Jesus Christ, then perhaps we are drifting. But if we have an increased desire for the things of the world, then perhaps we are drifting. And oftentimes we drift because of the troubles in our lives. Many times we can use the synonym giants for troubles. And it is the case that oftentimes a lot of the troubles that are in our lives and, and a lot of the giants that we, we face in our lives will cause us to fear and will cause us to move away from God. It was Harry Truman that said, it's a recession when your neighbor loses his job. It's a depression when you lose your own. You see, how we perceive our problems will determine how we handle them. When someone else is going through a difficult time or a trial in their lives and they're facing giants, we do not look at it in the same fashion as if we are facing those giants, do we? Oh, we're there to comfort and to put our arms around those that we love and, and we're there to help them. But it is different when we're going through it, isn't it? And therefore, when we understand that these giants, these problems that are in our lives that oftentimes we may make more out of them than what they truly are. And that will cause us to drift away from God. I want us to see an example of this, if you will, in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Turn there with me, if you will, this evening as, as we see the great example of, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with Caleb and Joshua. Remember that in Numbers chapter 13 that God had commanded Moses that he picked one man from each tribe so that there would be 12 spies that would go and spy out the promised land. We find in Numbers 13, verse 6, that one of these men is named Caleb. We find in Numbers chapter 13, verse 8, this other man named Oshia, or as we find in verse 16, he is Joshua, the son of Nun. Now remember that here are 12 spies that are sent out to spy out the land. And in Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through verse 4, we see that as they returned, notice that there was a great report that was given, but it was a false report. And this false report stated that the, by the ten spies, that it would be impossible to go in and make the conquest. Even though God had said... I will give unto thee this land, even though God has said, I will be with them. Notice that these ten spies, they came and they gave a false report, and therefore the attitude of the people began to slip, and they looked at it as a hopeless cause. 
Now let's go to Numbers 14, verses 5 through verse 9, and look at the report of the two men who were nearer to God. You see, I think in this particular passage we find these ten spies. They weren't as near to God as Joshua and Caleb were. And because they weren't as close to God, they weren't as near to God as Joshua and Caleb, notice that their entire attitude was different. Notice beginning in verse 5 of Numbers chapter 14. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. This happened just after that false report was given. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that scattered or searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Notice the report that Joshua and Caleb gave. They gave a completely different report. Again, why did they perceive this differently than the other ten? Because they were nearer to God. And now beginning in verse 11, we find that because of this disobedience, and God has always caused, called unbelief to be disobedience. And beginning in verse 11 of Numbers chapter 14, Moses, as he has done over and over again before this particular point, he pleads with God for the people. Now, of course, as we see here, that there are going to be consequences for believing this false report. Go with me to verse 32 through verse 34, and we're going to see now the consequences of not being near to God. If, if the Israelites who had heard this false report had been nearer to God like Joshua and Caleb, then notice that they also would have perceived this whole event differently. But notice now the consequences of unbelief and disobedience in verse 32. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years and bear your hordens until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which ye search the land, even forty days, each day for a year, shall ye bear your iniquities, even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. We see that because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief, because they were not near to God, they received this great condemnation. Now we find in verses 35, of course, through verses 45, that a great judgment came upon these disobedient spies. And of course, God killed those disobedient ones. You see, it is the case that if we are close to God... If we are near to God, our giants will be small. Notice again the ten spies. They said these are giants in this land. We're, there's no way we're going to be able to take this. There's no way we're going to be able to overcome this. But Joshua and Caleb, because they were close to God, they had a different view. Remember what James reminds us of in James 4 again, verse 8? 
Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh unto you. Each of us tonight understands that the devil wants us to be as far away from God as possible. Doesn't he? He wants us to be as far away from Him as possible. Think of our planets in our solar system. Mercury, the very first planet. Think of, of course, that planet is so hot, it's not even inhabitable. It is so hot, why? Because it's close to the sun. But Pluto, notice how far away Pluto is. It's just a cold rock. And we are many times, we'll find ourselves when we are far away from God, we become cold. We become apathetic. And that's exactly where the devil wants us to be. The devil wants us to be apathetic. He wants us to be cold. He wants us to be like Pluto. He wants us to be far away from that source as possible. But being close to God requires fellowship. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, As we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And if you will bear with me at the end of this sermon tonight, Perhaps there may be one here tonight that needs to be uh, or told how to have fellowship with God. But notice that we, of course, many of us all share in our giants. And, and we all, of course, understand that we, of course, have a lot of the same giants in common in our lives. Well, what are some of these problems? What are some of the, the giants? What are some of the fears? And what are some of the, the matters and the things of life that will keep us from being close to God? Well, of course, insecurity. The fear of losing the job is a, is a big one now, isn't it? Think about all of the people in our country now who are unemployed. And, and what a great fear it is to not be able to provide for your family. But if we concentrate and focus solely upon that, then we have no time to concentrate and focus upon God. What are some other things that we, we all may experience? What about guilt? I, I have had the privilege of, of talking to, uh, to, to many people and studying the Bible with many people. And, and over and over again, uh, sometimes what is brought up is, well, how can God love me? What about all of the terrible things that I have done in my life? And they, they hold that guilt inside and, and they think that, that God could, could never forgive them. But brethren, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. And his ear is not as heavy as so it cannot hear. Isaiah 59 and verse 1. But, but what about also jealousy and, and envy? Again, a, another problem that we all share. These are things that will keep us from being close to God. Bitterness, inner anger, uh, which of course anger turned inward is depression. Hatred, resentment, uh, loneliness of course is oftentimes a reason why we find ourselves not drawing near to God. Boredom, addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs... And so on and so on we can go. There are so many reasons and so many giants that will cause us to not be near to God. And these giants, of course, can hinder us relating to the past, relating to the present, and also relating to the future. 
Perhaps we're not near to God because, again, we, we think of the, the value and the meaning of our past life. Perhaps we aren't close to God because of the problems of the present. Or perhaps we're not close to God because of the impending feelings of hopelessness or the, meaning of, or the meaningless we might feel in life. Well, it is, of course, the fear of the giants the fear of the problems that cause us to lose our faith. And when we lose our faith, we, of course, cannot draw near to God. They cause us to think that God has no control over our lives. These problems and fears cause us to think that we do not have control over our lives. These giants cause us to be consumed. They consume our time. They, they consume our lives. They consume our thoughts so that we have no time for God, no way or no time to think about God, and no time to meditate upon Him. Because all we're doing is we are focusing upon the fears and the problems and all of the giants and the troubles in our our lives and when we focus upon them and only upon them we cannot and will not draw nearer unto God when was the last time that any of us worried about something over which God had 100% total control have you thought about that there are many things, of course, that God has complete and total control over. When was the last time we have sat up at night and angst over and worried about any of those things? We haven't, have we? Because we know that they are in His hands. We know that He has total control. And so therefore, what should we do? We should give our lives into His hands. We should give Him complete and total control. I want us to think tonight about how powerful God is. Sometimes we, we don't draw near to God because we think perhaps that He is not capable of helping us in our time of need or time of trouble. We want to, to be able to, to take care of the problems ourselves. We want to be able to, to handle the, the problems and the situations and we cannot handle any if we do not turn to God. We're reminded, of course, by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, verse 27, where God says, Behold, I am the Lord God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? We find, of course, in Mark 10, verse 27, that with God, all things are possible. In Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 6, a great verse that we should, should meditate upon and think upon during the times that these giants are trying to wedge their way in between us and God. When Isaiah writes that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me, I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms. As we turn to Psalm 145. And as we see, beginning in verse 14, a wonderful passage that, again, that we should meditate upon and think upon when these problems, these fears, and all of these giants try to wiggle and wedge themselves in between us and God. Notice that the psalmist writes that the Lord upholdeth all that fall 
and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. Speaking of humility. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Now notice verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him. To all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear He. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all the flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Again, we find that the truth, and by seeking God through the truth, that we draw nigh unto Him. Now remember, we can be as close to God as we desire to be. We find that the answer to worrying about our problems, the answer to, of course, worrying about our giants in life, is to do what Joshua and Caleb did. And that is to draw near to God. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. So how do we overcome these giants? Well, giants can be overcome by moving closer to the Lord. There is another event in the Old Testament in which we read about giants or a giant. You may be very familiar with this particular passage in 1 Samuel. Turn with me there if you will. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And of course now we turn our focus to David. The young shepherd boy, David, as he faces this giant, Goliath, we find that, that according to the scriptures, Goliath was over nine feet tall. And sometimes when we face our giants and we face a giant like that, we might just want to turn around and run. That's what a lot of the Israelites had chosen to do. No one wanted to face this giant. But why was David so confident that he could face this giant. Why was David so confident that he could overcome? Because David was near to God. David drew near to God. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through verse 4, that the Philistines had waged war against the Israelites. Remember that all throughout the period of the judges, the Philistines had oppressed the Israelites. And now we find that in verse 4 through verse 11 that this great man, this, this giant Goliath, he, he challenges Israel. In verse 12 through verse 19, we read of the account where Jesse, the father of David, sends David to go and to give food unto his brothers. And beginning in verse 20, we find that David learns of Goliath. And brethren, I believe right there, that was the biggest mistake that Goliath could have ever made is allowing David to hear him speak. Because notice when David heard this, David who was near to God, David who, who of course was a man after God's own heart as he is called, 
When Goliath allowed David to hear him speak, that was his biggest mistake. That was his downfall. Notice beginning in verse 24, the attitude of David. Here is a man who was near to God. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. Notice everybody else was, was running away. But now comes a man who's near to God. He's not going to turn and run. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel he has come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David now, a man who is near to God, uh, is going to face this giant. And, and, and in verses 32 through verse 37, we read now where he faces uh, Goliath. And, and notice in verse 37 that faith breeds confidence David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with thee. Yes, the Lord was with him. But when was the, the last time that you had thought that you were defeated? When was the last time that, that you thought that perhaps things could not get any worse? Things had just reached their peak. Things were about ready to explode and boil over. You perhaps thought that inside you were just in such great turmoil that, that you couldn't stand it anymore. You were about to fall apart into pieces. But you made it through. But how did you make it through? You see, the only way to make it through an event like that is to draw close to God. And no matter how big our giants can seem, and no matter how big our giants may be, we can overcome them all with God's help and by drawing close to Him. So how do we overcome our giants? How do we overcome those fears in life? We, we draw near to God. But I want us to also note what our Lord said to the church in Ephesus. We find that he said, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, he spoke of a church now. He said to them, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. What did the church in Ephesus do? What were they guilty of? They had drifted away from God. Notice he says that they had left their first love. The one who should be number one in their hearts. The one who should be number one in their thoughts. The one who should have been number one in their minds. The one whom they should have striven day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year to be closer to. To draw nearer to. And what is the cure? If we find ourselves drifting away or drifting back, how do we get nearer to God again? Well, of course, we find the cure here. When our love for Christ grows weak, when it wanes, our love for the brethren will also fade. 
Without fervent love for Christ, our, our service, our worship, our Bible study, our godliness, our prayer, our soul winning, none of that will measure up to God's standards. So the pattern of restoration is simple. He says, repent and return to the first works. Draw near to God. Again, to get back to daily Bible study and reading. To get back to, to constant prayer. Pray without ceasing. To get active again and involved in the work of the church. To pray daily for God's help. To ask your brothers and sisters in Christ for strength and for comfort and, and for help and for their prayers. And in all of these manners and in all of these ways, we find the way to once again draw nearer unto God. How many hours a week does God have you all to himself? Remember the beautiful hymn we just sang? Nearer my God to thee. To thee, nearer to thee, even though it be a cross that raiseth me, still all my song shall be nearer my God to thee, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. But we cannot be near to God if we allow the world and the giants and all of the worldly cares to rob us of our faith. And we cannot overthrow those giants with the same worldly mindset that we perhaps have used to create them. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, John writes this wonderful, wonderful truth. And perhaps this week or next week or, or the week after, when you're facing troubles and you feel like you're all alone, and perhaps when you feel like, like you are an island in the midst of, of a great expanse of sea. Remember that ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Tonight, if you're not close to God, Will you make the necessary corrections? Tonight, if you are not close to God and you desire to be close to Him, then that must, of course, and will be seen and gained in fellowship. I mentioned that earlier. That as we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all unrighteousness. That's a, a continual cleansing as we continue to, to live righteously and according to the Word, we continually repent and His blood continually cleanses us from all of our sins. But you see, that of course is a passage that's written to Christians. Those who are in fellowship with God. So how does one get into fellowship with God. Well, we can only have fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8 and verse 24. He is the only Savior. 
He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life that leads unto the Father. He said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the door. You enter in through Him. You enter in through His authority, believing that He is the Son of God. And then likewise, repenting of our sins. Luke 13, verse 3 and Luke 13, verse 5. When we repent of our sins... We, of course, have a a godly sorrow, but that's not repentance. A godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to be repented of. We, We don't regret the fact that we have to repent. But we're glad to repent. We're happy to repent. We're we're thankful that we're given the opportunity to repent and to make that change before it is too late. And so we make that change, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. We repent of our sins, and because we have repented, and because we have believed, we can then make a great confession that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 8 and verse 37. And when we make that great confession, then we can be baptized into Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. We enter into this watery grave. And as we enter into this watery grave of baptism, we come into contact with the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ washes away all of our sins. We then become a new creature as we rise out of that water. And now we walk in newness of life. I mentioned earlier in in, in the week that, that, that some say that you walk in newness of life before you're baptized. Some say, well, you become a a child of God and you enter into fellowship with Him and then you're baptized. Well, brethren, that's burying a live body. That cannot be. We, We die to self. We die to sin. We enter into that watery grave of baptism. We come up washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ. Then we're raised to walk in newness of life. Then we are that new creature created to do good works in Christ. But notice it doesn't stop once we come up out of that watery grave. God adds us to the church, Acts 2, verse 47. And then our work begins. It doesn't end there. The old man ends there. The new man begins there. And therefore, we walk in newness of life, leaving the old man behind as a new creature. We continue on faithfully, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. That is what the child of God is to do. Now, perhaps there is a, a child of God here tonight that needs to repent of, of, of sin or come home because sin has, has once again taken over your life. You can repent and you can confess and be restored. Of course, the child of God, what we call the second law of pardon, needs not be baptized again, but rather repent and confess and restore. If it is a public sin in nature, it needs to be done publicly. But if it's private, you can take care of it between you and God, right where you are. And I'm very thankful to have had this opportunity this week in those two precious souls that have come home. But brethren, the Lord's word will not return unto him void. But rather it will prosper. And it will flourish wherever he sends it. So so we really and and truly can't put any sort of measure on the edification perhaps that that, that we have had this week. Or perhaps those who have needed to make private changes and they have done so. But whatever is the case. 
When those changes are made, God is glorified. And that is why we breathe. That is why the very blood courses through our veins. So that God can be glorified. What a wonderful week this has been. I truly cannot thank you enough for allowing me to spend this time with each and every one of you. But I hope that on that great day, as we enter into heaven together in Christ, that every one of us will do it hand in hand. Don't you want that? Look to the loved one beside of you. Don't you want to, to walk hand in hand in, in, in he, into heaven with that one beside of you? With that beloved husband or wife? Perhaps we have brothers and sisters and loved ones awaiting us there. Waiting in paradise. Waiting to be reunited again. But you see, we can only be reunited if we're in Christ. There was a father who had two sons. The father was a, a Christian. He was a child of God. And he was on his deathbed. And his youngest son was a Christian. And he asked for his youngest son to come in first. So that they could have their few moments before he died. He looked at his son. He said, son, I've always loved you. I love you now. And I will see you soon. His other son, who had never obeyed the gospel, who wasn't a Christian, he asked for him to come in next. And the older son came in and he looked at his son and he said, Son, I've always loved you and I always will. Goodbye. Well, as they left, the father, of course, breathed out his last breath. The younger son said to the older, he said, why did he tell you he would see you soon? And why did he tell me goodbye? The son said, well, brother, because I'm a child of God. And our father was a child of God. And even though we're going to be separated, we're going to be reunited again one day. But unless you become a child of God, it's going to be goodbye forever. Brethren, it need not be so. We can all go into heaven hand in hand. We can be in eternity with one another, praising God throughout all eternity. I pray that's your desire tonight. I pray that's your desire to draw nearer to God. And tonight, if you need the prayers of the church, if you need to be restored, or if you need to become a Christian, please, I implore you, don't walk out these doors before you have made it sure before you have made that calling and election, sure. If you have that need, please come. As together we stand and as we stand.